Back of your hymnals, page 936. I'm not going to read the whole thing at once. I'm just going to read the first section that we're looking at, and then we'll read the, the next two sections as the message goes. But um, I also want us to look at two passages of Scripture. We're going to look at Genesis 17 first, and then we'll look at Acts chapter 2. So let's turn to Genesis 17 first. These are two important passages that go together. Genesis 17, we'll be starting at verse 4. Um, This is what God spoke unto Abram. Genesis 17, verse 4. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And then we'll go to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, starting at verse 37. Now, this is after the preaching of um, Peter. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself. And then we'll look at the first section of uh, chapter 28, the first section that we have for tonight, which is section 4. Not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. Let's pray together. (coughs) Our beloved Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand your word and Lord to understand that you are a God who does not change. We pray that you would help us to remember that because you do not change, therefore we are not consumed. And Lord, help us to understand uh, your covenant ways and and the ways in which you uh, bring in not only people into your your kingdom and into your covenant, but their children after them. Help us, we pray, to understand and believe your word and um, to understand some of the teaching here in this confession. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.
it's probably not what many people would do, but I figured in, in the study of baptism, especially in dealing with God's covenant relationship with men and the plan of salvation, I wanted to first start with looking at one of the attributes of God. And that attribute is called immutability. Immutability. What that means is that God does not change. And that verse for that, a beautiful verse for that, is found in Malachi 3 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. That's what immutability means. It means God does not change. We change with age. We might be strong, strapping young men or young women, and then when we get to be 70 or 80, we, we lose a lot of that muscle and we lose our balance and we, a lot of things decay and degrade. We change. We might uh, have an excellent memory in our teens, and then when we get to be 60, 70, 80, that memory declines drastically. Sometimes change is not all bad. Sometimes change is good. If you are a Christian and the Holy Spirit is working in you, sometimes change is for the better. Um, You might maybe not be so sanctified, but after being in church for maybe 20, 30 years, I'm hoping that you're growing in holiness and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and those fruit of the Spirit. So change can be good. But what's interesting is that God has always, from all eternity, always been infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He's never changed. He's always been infinitely holy, infinitely wise, infinitely all-knowing. There was never a time where God changed. Now, God's immutability, or the fact that he does not change, should be considered when looking at how he makes covenant uh, with people and comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament. In Genesis 17, 7, God made a promise to Abraham, which he just changed his name from Abram to Abraham. He said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Now imagine you're a Jew and you've been, you were raised knowing the Holy Scriptures and you've heard this verse all your life and you're maybe in your 40s and 50s and then you go to the Pentecost sermon of Peter and you're hearing the preaching of Peter you would think that this passage in Genesis 17.7 would have been very reminiscent of what you heard Peter preach when he said this in Acts 2. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for as many as... The Lord our God will call to himself. God promised to be a God unto us and to our children. And it's the same way and the same way of dealing in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You could say, our God doesn't change. Look at this. He's still 
works keeping covenant between believers and their descendants after them, just as he told Abraham. And that's why we see that there's a, a key basis here for the baptism of infants. Again, um, you can compare the covenant sign. I guess you wouldn't call it a sacrament, but you can compare the covenant sign of the Old Testament circumcision to that with baptism. And I have some, some of that in your notes here. So this covenant of sign of circumcision was given to a child at eight days of age. Now, the child did not have a say-so, could not give consent except to protest. Uh, I think many boys protested being circumcised. Um, but because of their circumcision and because of the family that they were born into, they were automatically raised as a Jew. And as they grew up and they came of age, they weren't allowed a time to say, well, son, we would like for you to evaluate these scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and see if you think that you believe in them and decide whether you want to become a Jew or not. No, he was raised as a Jew, taught as a Jew, taught to believe in the God of the fathers, the Jewish fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Covenant baptism, that signs, that sacrament of covenant baptism, should be given to our infants. We don't ask the infant for consent because that's the family the child is born into. And that's the family we raise that child in. We're taught to instruct our children after us. And we raise that child to be a Christian. And we don't wait for them to come of age and say, why don't you read the Bible and decide whether you want to become a Christian or not, and then we'll baptize you. I hope that you see the parallel here between circumcision and baptism. In both cases, though, a circumcised Jew or a baptized child, if they rejected the faith of their parents later in age, they were considered um, apostate. They were considered as those who uh, had rejected the faith of their parents and considered a covenant breaker. That word apostate means someone who rejects the faith. And you could say the faith and even the religion, or their church even. Now, let's say, perhaps believer baptism, if someone says believer baptism is what we think is taught in the New Testament, a converted Jew would have been astonished. Has God changed? I thought that God was a God unto us and to our children after us our descendants after us. Has God's promise to Abraham become null and void? Section 4 says, The infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. Now, that's an important notion for us because what do we do in the case of a divorce? And we know that divorce, especially in our culture, is a lot um, more prominent than it was back in the, in the time when this was written. Um, but what do you do if they have one parent who says it are Christian and the other parent's an unbeliever and the, the Christian parent wants a baptism? Do you have to have both sides agreeing to have the child baptized? No. The infants of one are both believing parents are to be baptized. And uh, there's a verse I want us to look at. It's 1 Corinthians 7. And this is in context of a mixed marriage, and um, it has to do with the, uh, the ab abandonment issue as well. So 1 Corinthians seven twelve, 
um, Paul says this, I say not, um, I'll start with the beginning of verse 12, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not um, send her husband away. Now here's the key part here, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified uh, through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now there's a, uh, there's a bit of debate and interpretation about this. Now, does this mean that an unbelieving spouse has given maybe a, a higher possibility of being of entering the kingdom of heaven just because of a believing spouse? I don't think that's what the passage is teaching. But there is a means of grace in that house for an unbelieving spouse dwelling with a believing spouse is exposed to prayer is exposed to the word of God. It is, is exposed to the fruit of the Spirit. And God can use those things. And if it's in God's eternal plan, God can save an unbelieving spouse through the patient, loving, uh, kindness, and, and faithful witness of a believing spouse. Now, does he always do that? No. But notice here, it talks about the children being holy. And that's in a mixed marriage here. You know, one, only one believing spouse. But the child is considered holy. A child of promise, you could say. And that's one of the proof texts that the, uh, the OPC uses for, for why we, we understand that you don't need to have both parents on board. You could just have one parent interested in baptizing the child. And therefore, that's why we do it. Um, section 6 gives us some of the way that we are to understand how God brings about salvation in a covenant child that is baptized as an infant. An infant. It says here in, in section 6, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. Now, most of us who uh, baptize our kids, we would love to hear this statement from our children. I can't remember a day when I didn't know and believe in the Lord? Or I can't believe, I can't remember a day when I didn't believe in Jesus. I've always, as long as I could remember, I've always believed in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross and what he did for me. I always remember that, even from my youngest age. That would be something we would love to have, but sometimes this doesn't happen. There are some covenant youth that stray away. Um, some baptized youth reject the faith, reject their family, but many years later come to a saving knowledge 
through Jesus Christ, after some great crisis, brings them to their knees. And I would say in that case, the efficacy of their baptism was not tied to that moment of time wherein it was administered. It came much, much later, years later, maybe even 30, 40 years later. I love this particular passage. I, I, it's uh, verses 5 and 8 of John 3. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. When God's Spirit moves, it's something that we cannot be in control of. We pray for it. We teach our children. We labor, but we also seek God's face. We would like to spare our covenant youth from sin, sorrow, and unbelief. But his timing of bringing salvation is according to the counsel of his own will in his appointed time. Section 7 says that the sacrament of baptism is once to be administered unto any person. To be administered once. Now, shortly after we bought our house, which I, I talked to Marianne about this by text, um, it's been 11 years since we bought this little house on Hudson Street. And we had a guy working there, and his name was David. And uh, he had told me, he was in his younger 20s, he had been baptized three times already. And it's, so it's been 11 years. I wouldn't be surprised if he's been baptized maybe a fourth time or fifth time. Now, why is that? Now, I, I know one reason in particular is he had periods of time of turning away from the Christian faith. And then after we, after we met him, he turned away again because I saw his name in a, in a newspaper of uh, people that were incarcerated for various reasons in the community. So maybe he's baptized a fourth time. Now, in the OPC, if we have somebody that falls away from the faith and then comes back, we don't, they don't need to be re-baptized because as if they're, maybe they, they nullified the baptism by falling, falling into to terrible, heinous sin. Well, we do do something. We, we have them come before the church and they have a reaffirmation of faith. They take their membership vows again. And then we welcome them back in. We hug them and we, they take the Lord's Supper and they're, they're just like another member of the church, all the same. Uh, another reason, um, well, again, in that case, we don't have to rebaptize that person. But another reason that we have uh, this repetition of baptism, especially in this community, is because of the, the presence of uh, unique theological positions such as oneness Pentecostalism. And if you're not baptized in, can't be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have to be baptized only in the name of the Son, namely Jesus Christ. Therefore, you're, unless that is done, you have to be re-baptized by them because they want you to have that particular baptism, which is 
after a uh, basically a doctrine of modalism which denies the Holy Trinity. So that's one reason. Another reason in our community is because of the Church of Christ, which I would say that has somewhat of a cultic kind of practice. And I, I've actually, that my, one of my first churches I attended out of the Catholic Church was the Church of Christ. I, there was things I liked about it, but uh, I, I sat down with the pastor and I asked him, I said, um, you mean to tell me that only your baptism in, in the Church of Christ is legitimate? Yes. You mean that like every other church in this whole community, all the Baptists and everyone else, and I don't know what other names I name, but I'm, you mean that their, church, their church's baptism is illegitimate? Yes. Only our church is the true baptism that God recognizes. Well, they feel that they have to rebaptize everyone who becomes a member of that church because they are somewhat in a relationship of having a very restrictive teaching in that fashion. And I, I think it's an error. And if you, if you look at the creeds, one of the things that we confess is the Catholicity of the church. We earnestly believe that ours is not the only legitimate baptism. Ours is not the only true faith. Uh, all churches are more or less mixed with truth and error. But a, a baptism done in faith, um, done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit should be recognized and doesn't have to be repeated just by whatever church who has a, a qualm about this. But again, the, the key thing I want you to take uh, from this message is this. God is a God who has covenant dealings based on the fact that he doesn't change. He is a God to us and to our descendants after us. And that's why we seek to baptize our children. But earnestly, we have to pray and teach and ask God to have his mercy that he would uh, continue um, to work in and through not only us as parents, but as uh, our children as well as we teach them and seek to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Now again, um, if you do want to look at more at this issue of this uh, proper baptism and why baptism is repeated by some, you can go back and look at a, a prior sermon. I, I have a, a note there where you can, a reference where you can go back and look at that sermon. But the key thing to remember as well is this. Baptism ultimately is not what saves. Baptism points. It's a sign, it's a seal that points to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sinners, who obeyed the, the law perfectly for sinners, who was raised from the dead for sinners, who ascended unto heaven and is the only mediator for, between God and man that, by which a man or a woman can be saved. Our faith is not on the issue necessarily of baptism. Our faith is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ and we look at baptism, we look at what Christ has done for us, and we take that sacrament as a way of profession of faith for that wonderful grace of what Jesus has done. Let's pray together. We ask our beloved Lord that you would help us to remember what you have done to bring us to yourself. We pray that you would be a God unto us and to our children. Help us as parents, Lord, to, to teach our children well. 
Lord, we pray that our children would see the truth of the gospel in the preaching and teaching of this church and the truth of the gospel in the lives of their, of their family members, their parents, and in the other members of this church. Help us, we pray, to nurture those who are growing up in the faith, and we pray that you would work in them mightily by your holy word and in, by your Holy Spirit, and that you would give them that new life, that your, your spirit would move in and through and would indwell them and would give them that grace to believe and receive the gospel, to receive Jesus Christ as he's offered in the Holy Gospel. Help each and everyone gathered here this evening, Lord, to remember the perfect work of Jesus our Lord, who died for sinners such as us, that we would embrace him and believe upon him alone for our salvation. For we ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. I want us to play through this hymn once. The closing hymn is uh, 189, Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord most dear. And Denise will play through it once before we sing. Let's stand and sing. <laughs> 